Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness. Here's the high stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Well, we've had a great response about this gorgeous website we've been talking up. Uh, you might have heard about them in L or Glamour or Men's Health. Sexcusemoi.com is this online boutique for the very finest sensual toys. Also, uh, bed and bath products, uh, erotic chocolates, and so forth. You might have heard the Kevin Goes to Kink Camp episodes that we just released. Well, I actually talked to several sex educators at the camp who spoke very highly about the products that Sexcusemoi carries. They say it really does make a difference when you go for the most sophisticated, the highest caliber sensual products. They might look like works of art, but they're also designed for great performances. So go to sexcusemoi.com. That's S-E-X-C-U-S-E-M-O-I.com. And with a $50 purchase and the promo code R-I-S-K, you get a free medium-sized bottle of Yes Organic Lube. Don't forget to put the Yes in your cart. Sounds good to me. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was a collage of various opening themes that we've used on the series so far, put together by an artist known as I Cut People, and this is Delta Spirit behind me now. Folks, we are entering our third season. We are through our terrible twos, and we begin our third year in business right here, right now. We have scrambled and scraped our way this far, and we have had a wonderful time doing it, I must say, with a lot of your assistance. 
We're going to celebrate today uh, how far we've come by doing a little best of show. Uh, This will be actually the first of two best of shows. We'll have the second one a little bit later on down the line so that we can keep getting you brand new stories this month as well. But today we're going to look back at some of our very favorites and we're going to start with a story by the man whose advice really helped kick this entire endeavor into gear. The man who first told me, take a risk, drop the act every now and then, see what it might be like to step into the spotlight as yourself. His new book, You're Not Doing It Right, comes out in February. This is my fellow state member, Michael Ian Black, with a story we call The Ring of Fire. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Brown. Good night, Moon. <laughs> oh, it's going to be hard to uh, compete with Deke. I have nothing particularly meaningful to offer to the evening's festivities. But uh, Deke reminded me of a time in my life, pre-children, I also have children. Uh, And I would agree with your assessment that they have very little to offer. (laughs) Mine are now 10 and almost eight, and still I'm waiting. (laughs) But before children, Before uh, that was really a thought in our heads, I entered marriage with uh, some trepidation, as, as, as you should. And to that point in my life, I had been, and uh, continue to be, fairly conservative in terms of my uh, uh, proclivities. Which is to say, I never uh, drank, literally never drank, never smoked cigarettes, never did drugs, never did anything like this. But then I got married. (laughs) And we went on our honeymoon. And we decided to go uh, on our honeymoon to Amsterdam. <laughs> Which I know is, you know, that's a strange place to decide to go for your honeymoon. We went for the whores. <laughs> you know, they're there. <laughs> and for the Anne Frank house. So while we're online at JFK airport to to board our flight to Amsterdam, it's an overnight flight, 
and uh, we're flying coach because we're uh, poor. <laughs> and we get up to the counter, and the woman uh, at the KLM station is punching in the thing, and she looks up, and she goes, uh, are you on your honeymoon? And I'm like, does it say that on the computer? <laughs> How do you know that we're on our honeymoon? She goes, your rings, your rings are sparkly and bright, and they look brand new. And we say, you're very observant. We just got married. We're going on our honeymoon to Amsterdam. She goes, and Frank House? She didn't say that. So we go, yeah, we're going on our honeymoon. And she goes, congratulations. And then, you know, she does her little thing and she hands us our tickets and we say thank you and then we look down and we realize she's upgraded us to first class. And oh, and we're like, wow, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. And she's like, have a good marriage, you know, have a good life, have a good marriage. I'm like, great. So I've always wondered if you've ever seen the 747s, huge planes, there's like a little bubble on top of the plane where there's like a second story. And I've always wondered what's up there. Well, when you're in first class, you find out. <laughs> Turns out, uh, when you get up, up, up there, it, it, what's up there is magic. <laughs> it's, it could not be cooler. It's just, it's just like a little uh, salon <laughs> where there's just, you know, sofas and divans scattered about haphazardly and mink stoles everywhere <laughs> topless stewardesses going around giving you foot massages it's just great up there it's just you know you get your own chair and it goes back and then as soon as you get in they come in and they give you a bag and it's filled with gifts there's like little slippers that you can put on and an eye thing and then there's collectible earthenware <laughs> which surprised the hell out of me that there would be delft earthenware collectibles filled with liqueur and then they just give you. Thank you very much. And enjoy your earthenware. <laughs> and the flight, honestly, could not have lasted. I mean, it could have gone on forever. I could still be up there and I would be happy. It was just, it, it was, it was, it was just a cocoon of marvelousness for, what, seven hours? And then it lands and you're, and you're almost disappointed when you have to leave and go to Europe. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, <laughs> Europe can't compare to this. And it didn't. <laughs> I mean, it was fine. We had, it was lovely. And we, we, we went to, we were uh, swapping apartments with a couple, which is how we could afford the thing to Amsterdam. And they had this nice apartment uh, kind of overlooking this little canal because Amsterdam is filled with canals. And uh, the first thing I do when I get to the apartment is I, I, we sort of put down our stuff and then we're a little jet lagged, and I think to myself, you know, these are, this is a Dutch couple that we're uh, renting from. I'll bet you anything there are topless pictures of the hostess. Because <laughs> they're Dutch, you know what I mean? It's just like, this has gotta be. Go to the photo albums. There are. Look at those for a little while. And I'm feeling like this is a really good honeymoon. 
And we're there for like a couple days, going to you know little shoppies and eating little Dutch sandwiches and going to art museums. And uh, there's something sort of gnawing at me. And we, go, we, we walk through the red light district, you know, which you know what that is. And it's, you know, it's, it, 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 it would rival uh, Deke's experience of least erotic place. <laughs> there's nothing erotic about, you know, just chicks in windows going. <laughs> it's not. It's not great. But it's gnawing at me because I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I, I should get high. Like, I should do that. <laughs> so I say to my wife, I'm like, our last night there, I'm like, you know what we should do? We should get high. And she's cool. She's like, okay. <laughs> she's really cool, you guys. And we just had this big Italian dinner, and I was like, take me to the place where you get high. I'm saying this to my wife, and like, she knows, but because she's gotten high before, she's an expert in my eyes. So she takes me to one of the coffee shops, which are in the red light districts, and that's what they call them in Amsterdam, where you get high. There's just these, you know, shitty little cafes. There are, you know, red walls and Bob Marley posters up and terrible music playing. And there's always uh, a passed out, unconscious American somewhere. <laughs> who could not handle his pot. Some sort of, you know, just douchebag guy who just can't get over the fact that there's pot there and he just ingests too much. That's the place we go, one of those places. And we get a space cake because I've never inhaled and I'm afraid to inhale things. I don't know, I just don't know how to do it. And you, you guys know, I mean, you, 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 that's all you do. They're just these brownies that are, you know, half chocolate, half lawn clippings and you just choke it down. And they're horrible. They taste horrible. And I'm waiting for it to kick in. And waiting. And 20 minutes goes by, half an hour goes by, nothing is happening. And I say to my wife, do you feel anything? She's like, I don't know. She's like, be patient. I'm like, I'm being patient. Nothing's happening. Another 10 minutes goes by, I'm like, I don't think this is working. She's like, I feel okay. Well, I'm like, well, it's not working for me. What I think happened is that we just had this big dinner, and so all you know, the active ingredient in the pot, all the TMZ got absorbed <laughs> into my food, and it's not gonna work. I'm like, go get a joint. And I'm making her do everything. And she's like, are you sure? Because we just had the space cake, and I think it's gonna work. If you just give it, I'm like, just get the fucking thing. Because that's how I talk to her. And she goes, <laughs> and she buys uh, a joint. And I'm like, you have to teach me how to inhale because I've never smoked anything in my life. You have to teach me. And she's like, it's really easy. You just, and then you hold, and then you let it go. And I go, okay, and I go, and I hold. And then I, you know, cough uncontrollably for about three minutes. <laughs> And she's like, how do you feel? I'm like, I don't feel anything. It's not working. She goes, it's just, try it again. I'm like, it's not working. And she's like, well, I'm high. I'm like, I'm not. It's not working. Pot doesn't work on me. So 
what starts off as a joint like this, you know, slowly gets smaller and smaller as I'm smoking it going, it's not working. It's not working. It's not working. And then she says something to me, you know, in regards to my inhalations, which is the first time she has said this to me in, during our marriage, but she will subsequently repeat it uh, every day right up until the present. At a certain point, she goes, you're not doing it right. I'm like, well, how the fuck else am I supposed to do this? I'm breathing. Like, I know how to breathe. Like, that's breathing. I'm like, it's not working. And then, all of a sudden, I hear somebody screaming. Like, really, like, screaming. Like, murderous. Like, he's... he's and, and he's just, like, sphere. And it's a woman... And she's screaming, he's dead. Oh my God, he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. Oh my God, he's dying. He's dead. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And then I realize I'm unconscious. (laughs) The person screaming is my wife. I have now become that asshole American passed out in the front of the coffee shop because he could not handle his pot. And she's going, he's dying, he's dying. And I feel the little thin arms of the Dutch boy who works there sort of pick me up off the floor and put me back onto my stool and my eyes kind of open a little bit and my wife goes, is he gonna die, is he gonna die? And the guy goes, nobody ever died from pot. (laughs) And then he disappeared in a puff of smoke. (laughs) And I say to my wife, what happened? And she goes, you were yelling that it wasn't working, it wasn't working, it wasn't working, and then your head hit the table you fell onto the floor. And I said, that doesn't sound good. She's like, it wasn't. So we agree to leave, and we get up, and we walk out, and we walk back to uh, the apartment where we're staying, except that she's walking, and I am walking like a panda bear. because I have now become a panda bear. Which is a surprise to both of us. But that's what it is, I'm a panda bear. And you know, it sounds cute and whatever until you realize like it's late at night and even like during business hours, like, you know, you get the munchies when you, when you ingest this stuff, and when you think you're a panda bear, it's like really complicated because you cannot find bamboo <laughs> in Amsterdam that time of night. <laughs> so we make it back to our apartment and I climb the stairs as a panda bear would and get into bed as a panda bear would and my wife tucks me in. And then I wake up like eight hours later and I am still a panda bear. (laughs) And I say to her, how long is this gonna last? 
And she says, it'll stop soon. And it doesn't. It goes on for almost the whole day, and we have to go to the airport because it's time to return to America now. Changed people. And we go, and we're haggard, and I am still semi-panda. And we walk up to the uh, KLM people, and I say, show them your ring. Just hold up your hand and show them your ring. And we kind of walk up like this. And I'm like, you just kiss me. She's like, I don't want to. I'm like, I don't want to kiss you either. Just kiss me. Pretend that we're still in love. And we're haggard and tired. And, and we get up to the thing and the woman is typing at the thing and she looks up and she goes, you know, going back to New York? I'm like, yeah. And she looks back down and I say, we were just on our honeymoon. <laughs> and she goes, uh-huh. <coughs> it was great. Yeah. Saw the Anne Frank house. <laughs> she goes, congratulations. She hands us the thing and we look at it and we are in coach. And we get onto the airplane. And the seats now in coach are much smaller than they would have been had we never been in first class. <laughs> they are infinitely small. And the seats in front of us are infinitely close. And we are infinitely tired and infinitely no longer in love. <laughs> because of this long evening that we just had and my wife says I don't think I can do this and I don't know in that moment if she means sit in coach for eight hours or the marriage <laughs> and I swear to you a Russian women's basketball team sits all around us I swear to you that's who they were I'm, I'm not, they're the biggest people, male or female, I have ever seen. And they are Russian, and they play basketball. And there's a stereotype about Russians that all they do is drink. I am here to report to you tonight that that stereotype is absolutely true. And it was the most awful eight hours of my life. And I thought to myself, having survived that, and having survived this long, infinite evening of just tripping out of my mind on pod. <laughs> and being exhausted. And coming back to our shitty New York apartment and thinking to myself, if we can survive this, we can survive anything. And we landed at JFK and we got off and, and feeling pretty good and feeling like, my God, we are, we are, we survived this and we're starting to laugh about it and we're, we can survive anything. And this goes back to Deke because uh, a couple years later we had children and that was so much worse. 
Thank you guys very much. This is Risk, a mashup by Mark Vidler behind me now. Listen, be a part of this. Give what you can to our fundraising effort at Indiegogo.com called Keep Risk Running. We have 10% of our goal raised with just five weeks left. And here's what you could win. We can put on a Risk live show in your home. Or Lisa Lambanelli will personally insult you for a whole day on Twitter. Or I'll record your cell phone's answering message. The Sklar brothers, they'll coach you on handling your fantasy football team. Margaret Cho, she'll give you sex advice. Uh, Janine Garofalo will personally create a friendship necklace for you. Mark Marin will send you a personalized autographed WTF poster. Kevin Nealon and Rachel Draft, they'll send you autographed copies of their books. And many more prizes you can't get anywhere else. We need your support at Indiegogo.com. The project's called Keep Risk Running. Go there now. Coming up next, we're going to hear a story from our good friend, the very talented actor, Mr. Adam Griffin. Uh, who could forget this one? We call it Fantasy Farm. Every autumn, starting when I was around seven or eight, my mom and dad and I used to drive to the White Mountains in New Hampshire to see the changing leaves. My favorite stop that I always look forward to every year was this, it was this place, this odd combination petting zoo and low budget amusement park, strangely titled Fantasy Farm. They had uh, at Fantasy Farm, dare I call them rides, uh, like this one involving a track, a metal track, and small train cars you could sit on and crank 
in front of you in kind of a circular motion with your hands. Yes, you you powered the ride yourself. At Fantasy Farm, I think the closest thing to an actual farm animal that they had was probably a flamingo. The furthest thing that they had from a farm animal would have to be the gorilla. The gorilla sat in this very unjungle-like room with a little window at the back and a large glass window at the front where humans, like my dad and I, could get a good view. There was also a long metal tube at an angle, kind of a 45-degree angle that went from the outside world through the glass uh, into the fluorescent-lit gorilla room, a, a bridge between worlds, if you will. My dad and I would always visit this gorilla, We'd watch him sitting there, bored, watching us. But he did have feeding time to look forward to. And thanks to my dad, uh, something else. On this particular visit, my dad had the inspired idea to step up to this enigmatic metal tube as though it were sort of a microphone. This involved my dad crouching down quite a bit. And uh, he started making noises into the tube. Um, He started doing this sort of rhythmic, guttural, gorilla-esque breathing uh, through through the tube. Sort of, it sounded sort of like this. (laughs) The sound reverberated back to us through the glass, and really, you know, through going through the tube and then through the glass, it it sounded otherworldly, like this kind of distant chanting, mystical, magical gorilla. Just this sort of... (laughs) Upon hearing this sound, uh, the real gorilla looked up suddenly with this expression almost of sort of recognition. Uh, Like this, you know, a sound he hadn't heard since he couldn't remember when. Familiarity. He looked at my dad from across his bright white gorilla room, and uh, I'm not exaggerating, slowly, he started to kind of bob to the rhythm, kind of, he slowly started doing this kind of gorilla dance. (laughs) He started bobbing his head up and down, first very gradually, uh, then, you know, more and more, and then really emphatically up and down, you know, full on headbanger, <laughs> really getting into it. So at this point, my dad is clutching the metal pole with both hands, breathing more heavily, more loudly. <laughs> my dad is sort of bouncing up and down to the same rhythm as the gorilla. The gorilla's bouncing. They sort of, they're just, they're getting this communication going. Uh, The gorilla's shaking his head side to side, throwing his head back, dropping it down. And now the gorilla is not only bobbing rhythmically to this, (laughs) he starts to clap, literally clap his hands to the beat. So there's this, (laughs) I mean, it's really this incredible kind of, cross-species communication. And at this point, parents and children are starting to sort of gather around and just watch this. I mean, 
It's amazing. And of course, I'm thinking my dad is just the coolest dad ever. I mean, he's totally just having this amazing moment with this gorilla. (laughs) My dad's eyes are open wide. (laughs) The gorilla now closes his eyes, shaking his head, nodding, jumping, clapping. (laughs) People are gathered around. I'm just looking, just filled with pride and and amazement at this scene that's unfolding before me. And suddenly the gorilla jumps back onto what I can only call a shelf, revealing his long, veiny gorilla erection, and then he ejaculates all over the glass. Before we can even understand what has happened, he's the gorilla is just sitting back, totally relaxed looking very satisfied and uh my dad and i are just frozen here it's just absolutely silent this tableau of this post-orgasmic gorilla and my dad still kind of leaned over this metal tube but now just wide-eyed in horror uh at this point parents and children um you know with these kind of looks of horror on their faces uh, are just agape at the scene, at the gorilla. And, and there's this moment where everybody sort of turns and looks at my father. And the parents of these children start kind of slowly but purposely shepherding their children away from my dad, uh, you know, who I guess at this point sort of looks like this pied piper of cross-species sexual perversion. Um, and they, and they just start, you know, sort of slowly pulling their kids away, Bobby and Janie, let's, uh, let's get away from the strange, mysterious tall man who just brought this gorilla to orgasm. And, uh, meanwhile, the gorilla is just lounging on, on his gorilla shelf, uh, casually sniffing his own semen. So there's this moment where. Everybody's kind of cleared out, and it's just me, my dad, and the very happy and relaxed gorilla. And I remember my dad kind of turns to me, and we we look at each other, and we both just spontaneously laughed. Really, what can you do but laugh? Later on, sitting in the car with my corncob pipe that said Fantasy Farm in my mouth, I thought about what had happened And I thought, my dad must be a very powerful man to have such an effect on an animal that's so large as a gorilla. As the years passed, we did go back to Fantasy Farm, and my dad and I did visit the gorilla, uh, but neither of us ever came anywhere near that long metal tube again.
This is Bubble Club behind me now. Now let me explain for you all what the poo flags are. Folks, you are about to become a part of the poo flag revolution. If you go to our blog on the front page of risk-show.com, you'll see a new entry there where you can print out this flag design and there's dotted lines where you can cut your flag out of the paper you print out and there's simple instructions for how to attach your flag to a coffee stirrer or popsicle stick or a pipe cleaner something like that and when you're walking around town and you spy a bit of dog poo on the sidewalk you can stick one of these poo flags in it and the flag says this is shit. Risk is not this. And it has our URL on it. So you'd be helping us spread the word. And you could take a photo of your work and send it to us. We want to create a big collection of poo flag photos from around the world. We know we have listeners in Japan and Germany and Israel and all that. So go to our blog on the front page of risk-show.com and print out your own poo flags and let's get to work. Uh, will you join in our crusade? Who will be strong and stand with me? These are the poo flags of a people who will not be slaves again to a world where most people haven't heard of this podcast. All right, next up, the gorgeous Julia Rozzi. I, I I'm not exaggerating when I say that many men said they had to readjust themselves in their seats after, after she told this one at the Risk Live show in New York. We call it The Grind. Nine, ten, I'm not sure. It's pretty fuzzy. Uh, I became obsessed with humping things. Uh, anything I could get my Esprit sweatpants on, I would hump um, pillows, side of the bed. Uh, all of my stuffed animals have been humped by me. Um, <laughs> when I go home now and I see my stuffed animals still in my childhood bedroom, I feel like all their eyes are glaring at me being like, you slut, you know, every single one. Um, and I didn't really know what I was doing when I was humping things. Uh, I just knew that it uh, felt really good. Uh, and I kind of had assumed that I had invented it because nobody had told me about it. And then I started to think, oh my God, I invented it. When I grow up, I'm going to write books about it. I'm going to teach classes about it. I'm going to have seminars all about it. Uh, but then uh, the fact that it involved my thingy. Uh, I knew that it was probably a bad thing to do, so I only did it at night when no one was around. That was until my mom purchased what, to this day, I will say, is the best sex toy in the world, um, a beanbag chair. Uh, <laughs> she bought this white, gorgeous, gorgeous beanbag chair, and uh, it was in the living room. And the way I discovered that it was a great uh, sexual partner was that one day I had stayed home from school, and I was watching Different Strokes. Uh, not, not a sexy show, but uh, I made it sexy. I, and I was sitting, I was sitting on the beanbag chair, kind of like this, like squatting on it like a frog. 
and I was sitting on it, and it was the episode of Different Strokes where uh, Arnold and Dudley got stuck in a haunted house. I don't know if anyone remembers this episode, but it was it was a scary episode, very special episode, and I I got scared because they were scared, and I kind of started tussling on the beanbag chair in fright, but then my tussling sort of turned into ecstasy tussling, and and before I knew it, I was like full on like fucking a chair, and. <laughs> I don't remember if Dudley and Arnold ever got out of that haunted house, but I do remember something very special happened that day. Um, I, I want to say I fell in love. Uh, because every time I would go back to the chair, it sort of like stroke its pretend face or whatever and just do it. Um, but the problem was the chair was located in a very public part of the house, the living room, and I had already decided that it was reserved for special private time, but I didn't care because this chair was so good to me that I would just find ways to like sneak in a hump even if someone could walk by. Maybe the risk part of it sort of turned me on as well at age 10. Uh, like I even knew what that meant. But And I didn't even, didn't even take a lot for me to want to do this thing because um, I would hump it while watching anything. Like I remember one time I humped it while watching She-Devil, which... The only, like, kind of naughty scene in it, I think, is between Ed Begley Jr. and Roseanne Barr, so I don't really know what that was all about. I remember one time I was humping the chair um, while watching that show, Out of This World, and my dad walked by, and I remember, like, I was, like, mid, you know, grind or whatever, and I really wish I could have done that finger-pointing thing that Evie would do to her boyfriend, and just, like, pause time and get off the chair so my dad wouldn't notice. Um, and I don't, still don't know if my dad ever noticed what I was doing, because then we had dinner after I watched Out of This World and got off, and my dad didn't say anything to me, but my dad doesn't really talk to me, so it was just, like, a regular dinner anyways, so... <laughs> And I would like, like this chair, I would think about it all day long. Like I would be in class, I would be in class and one of my friends would be like, do you want to come over after school and play? I'd be like, no, I'm really busy humping furniture. Like I didn't care, I just couldn't wait to get home. My mom was thrilled that I wanted to be home all day and I was like, you don't even know. So I then met this girl, and she basically ruined my, my love affair. Uh, she, her name was Jill, and, uh, and her mom had given her a book about sex. And uh, this book taught her all about sex, and she in turn taught me all about sex. And what she taught me uh, was about masturbating, and when she got to that chapter, she said, uh, Julia, do you know what masturbating is? I was like, yeah, totally. <laughs> of course. No idea. She goes, well, it's when you touch your thing or you rub your thing against something and it feels good. You didn't do that, do you? And I was like, oh, my God. Crazy? No. Why? She's like, oh, because it's really gross and you can get pregnant. (laughs) Clearly, Jill did not read the whole chapter. Um, I later found out, pre-Google research, looked in the encyclopedia, you can't get pregnant from, from doing it, but it was so gross. And I confirmed this fact by asking all my little girlfriends. I was like, you don't like touch your... And then they're like, ew, that's so gross. And I was like, yeah, totally. <laughs> like dying inside, so upset. So I decided I had to quit. I had to quit this romance because the last thing a little girl wants to be is so gross. But I didn't know how to quit. I was like compulsed to just like... It was there in the living room just like asking for it. You know, like I just wanted... Ugh. And I would like pray to God. Like I literally would be like, please God, help me stop this thing, this thing I need so badly. And I thought it was going to stop when the chair broke. 
Um, the chair popped. I was the only one who sat on it. I was like, what, 80 pounds? Like, the seams popped. And I thought my mom was going to throw it away, but she's frugal. So instead of throwing it away, she put it in a trash bag. She was like, oh, you can still sit on it. Like, like as if it was still... So I would. So now I'm humping garbage, you guys. Like, I didn't care. Like, the plastic was all ripped. Like, it was just... But I eventually, I did, I did kind of lose interest. Uh, the more I, I got interested in boys, I got less interested in inanimate objects. And I was uh, interested in one boy in particular, this guy Rick. Um, and Rick was, he was a football player. Uh, he was very popular. Uh, I gave him my first hand job during the movie Mighty Ducks 2. Um, he was a great guy. And he was... Um, he was black, and I only mention this because I grew up in like a very white suburb, and he grew up in a more urban part of the city. And whenever he would call, like my mom would be like, "Julia, Rick's on the phone." I would like run to my CD, uh, my CD player, and like take out my Poison and Warrant CDs and throw in like SWV and Jodeci and Silk, and like have the phone kind of like pass the CD player to be like, "Hey, just listen to some Urban Jams," you know, like <laughs> so I could have like hot street cred at like age. 15 or whatever so I would do this and I would have this like like R&B music playing in the back and one night we were on the phone and he was like I was just talking and he was like oh so so what, what, what's, what's going on and I was like oh you know I just had some pizza whatever and he's like uh huh and I was like what what are you he's like just keep talking and I was like uh okay about new Z Cavarici pants at the mall and he was like and I was like, what are you doing? He was like, oh, okay, thank you. And I was like, what What just happened? He's like, oh, I just jerked off while you were talking. And I was like, what? Why did you even say anything sexy? And he was like, it's just your voice. What, you don't, you don't touch yourself? And I was like, ew, no, that's so gross. Like, why would you accuse me of such a thing? He's like, well, you really should. I'm like, I absolutely couldn't. That's crazy. And he's like, do it. <laughs> I don't know if it was just this, like, sexy urban voice and like like the sounds of like Silk's Freak Me Baby oh yeah like playing in the background but I was like alright alright I'm gonna do this and I did and since then I have proudly admitted to doing quote unquote it uh, however I haven't done it with a beanbag chair ever since and I just say it was really funny because uh, my, mom, my mom eventually threw away the pile of garbage probably about 10 13 years ago I'm not sure and, um, but not too long ago, I don't even know they sold BMAC chairs anymore, but uh, she replaced it with a brand new, ironically, black beanbag chair <laughs> that is sitting in our living room, uh, total virgin, untouched. And I gotta say, <laughs> I, I was just home two weeks ago, I'm not even kidding. I like walked by it and I was like, hey, what's up? And the chair was like, hey. And like, my stomach dropped, like... I couldn't believe it was there, just like, you know, and to this day, I haven't been with a, a better lover, I will say that. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Anthony Rajakoff behind me now. 
Our next story is one of the most talked about stories uh, from our first two years. This is by the brilliant actress Lily Taylor of uh, Six Feet Under and I Shot Andy Warhol. Uh, Lily kind of helped usher in the more loaded sort of risk story that we've come to know and love. Uh, This one has actually been made into a short film. The filmmaker Sean Christensen is very passionate about it. He's hoping that the whole thing kind of shines a little bit more light on the particular issue of mental illness that the story explores. So we're very proud to have worked with both Lily and Sean. From the In Harm's Way episode at the beginning of season two, this is Lily Taylor with The Duel. So growing up, my dad suffered from severe manic depression, and he was in and out of hospitals all through my childhood. There was one particular time when I was about 16 or so that he was having an especially intense manic episode. There was a feeling of dread in the house because we could all feel where things were going to be going. There were six kids, and uh, the two youngest were my brother and I. We were uh, under a year apart, actually. We came home from high school one day. I was 16, he was 15. And my dad was sitting there in his big black chair in a pink slip. His hair was up in bobby pins, and he had a lipstick on, and he had a big smile on his face, and he said he was just so happy that we were home. And would we please sit down on the couch? Would we like anything to drink? What could he get for us? We sat down on the couch, and in front of us, we saw every knife from the kitchen, from the small knives to the, to the biggest, sharpest knife that we had, and everything in between. There were about 25 knives on the table. And Dad said, listen, I, I can see you've seen these knives, and here's what I want to talk to you about. Duffy, this, this is for you. There's, a, there's been a problem. I think we can all sense it. There's, there's just there's too many men in the house. There's not enough room for the both of us. One of us has to go. It's not going to be me. I can tell you that much. So I would like to challenge you to a duel. I would like you to take any knife you want. We'll go down to the basement, have it out like two, two, two gentlemen, and one of us will come up. Please, Duffy, choose whichever knife you'd like. Duffy said, I don't want a duel. Dad said, come on. I mean, you got to say it. It's a brilliant plan. Duff, there's just not enough room for the both of us, right? And Duffy kept saying, I, I, I don't want to duel. And I could see how far gone my dad was. I didn't know what to do to try to reach him. He had been a writer at one point in his life, and I, for some reason, came up with a ridiculous uh, metaphor of, of using the, the pen is mightier than the sword, Dad. You, why don't you write it out with Duffy? Do, Well, that wasn't going anywhere. Dad just looked at me and then looked away and looked back to the knives. Dad was getting more and more agitated. I said, oh, you know what, Dad? I'm going to get you um, a Dr. Pepper because he loved Dr. Peppers. And maybe that'll just, we'll just drink a little Dr. Pepper and, you know, get our bearings. 
So I snuck away and called my mom because it felt like she was the one who could always get him back. So uh, I called her at work and I said, get home fast. He's, he's gone. And she got home fast and came in. I hadn't told her what was happening. So she came in and saw the knives laid out and said, you know, what the hell is going on here, man? She scooped them all up, went into the kitchen, came back out, took my dad, went into the bedroom. They closed the door. We heard whispering. And after about 45 minutes, mom and dad came out. He had, now had his hair combed over and a suit jacket and some pants, and he had slapped some cologne on. We heard the sirens outside, the ambulance, and he just looked down and walked past Duffy and I, mumbled sorry, and they went off to the hospital together where he uh, stayed for about a month and got calibrated and came back home, tired but uh, somewhat restored to sanity. This is Agnes Obel with a song that first occurred on an episode of Extra Risk. If you're a fan of the show, you might have noticed we're playing a lot of the songs that have meant a lot to us over the past two years as well. Uh, just as storytellers donate their stories, many wonderful musicians donate their songs to the podcast, and we are truly grateful to them. Uh, if you're wondering where all the stories told in front of an audience happen... Well, we've got a show coming up in New York and a show coming up in Los Angeles, both on October 27th. We'll be telling spooky stories for Halloween at the Nerd Melt Theater in L.A. with Jason Biggs of the American Pie movies and Campbell Smith of She's a Lady. Uh, the theater's URL is nerdmeltla.com. In New York on the 27th, we'll be at the People's Improv Theater, with the fabulous Sarah Benincasa of Agora Fabulous. 
So if you're anywhere near New York or L.A., come out and see us on the 27th. Risk makes for a very special evening of live theater. And next, our last entry of this first of two Best of Risk episodes. Uh, this is one of the specialist things that ever happened at a Risk live show. When A.D. Miles, my old friend and the head writer of Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, he told this story that we've come to know and love as The Deuce. Starts with a girl. Uh, in the early 90s, my first job at, in New York City was working at the video company Buns of Steel, made uh, <laughs> exercise videos. And uh, I didn't exercise, I didn't make the videos, I tracked the orders of the videos as they were shipped around the country. And one of the girls that I worked with was a salesperson named Dana. And Dana and I, like uh, a lot of young 20 somethings that have jobs, uh, flirt a lot at work. And we, I thought there was something going on there, and uh, I had a little bit of a crush on her. And so one day I asked her if she wanted to get together over the weekend. And she said, uh, sure, why don't we get together on Sunday and go to the park and hang out? And I said, that sounds like a great idea. It's a kind of a, you know, not a high pressure type situation. We can get to know each other, and maybe we'll make out at some point. Um... So, uh, Saturday night, I go out with my friends, as I did for about the first six years that I was in New York City, and I got wasted. And uh, Sunday morning rolls around, and I am super hungover, like crazy hungover. My stomach feels like there's a, a battle going on uh, inside it, and something horrible is going to happen at some point. Uh, but I have a date with Dana, so I'm going to go for it anyway. So I go meet her in the park, and it's a hot summer day in the middle of Central Park, and I'm wearing a t-shirt and some cut-off duckhead khaki shorts, and we go to Sheep's Meadow, and we uh, spread out a blanket, and we're laying in the sun, and we're talking. She's got her sunglasses on. She's telling me a story, and as I'm listening to the story my stomach starts to gurgle. Noises start to happen. I start to feel like an event is about to take place. <laughs> and um, I guess this is where the blindsided part of my story happens. So I went to poot. And instead of just pooting, I released a floodgate of diarrhea into my shorts. And I'm not talking about just a little bit. I'm not talking about a little accident. I'm talking about quarts of diarrhea filled my shorts. And I'm laying on the ground next to this girl that I have a crush on. 
and she's telling a story, and I'm sitting there, and I'm going, all right, this has happened. This is the reality on the ground. I'm a 25-year-old man, and I'm laying <laughs> next to this lady, and I've got a pants full of shit. And I have to deal with this situation. Now she's talking this entire time, which made, makes me think, well, she doesn't know what's happened. So I could possibly get out of this situation. And so I, um, I reach down and I, I grab my shorts and I gather them up against my legs, forming sort of like a seal. And I, uh, when I feel like I've got a good enough seal, I go for it. And I say, Dana, uh, I'm gonna go uh, take a leak in the bathroom. And she's meadow. And I, she's like, great, all right, I'll see you in a minute. And I stand up and I back away from Dana, holding my pants against my legs and containing most of the evidence, not all of it. There's some runaway strays down the leg. Sorry, this is what happened, guys. I'm not gonna spare you any of the details. And I go towards the bathroom, and I'm thinking, oh my God, I cannot believe this has happened. I hope I don't see anyone I know. I just want this problem to go away. I just wanna deal with it. So I go to the bathroom, and it's a weekend day in Central Park, and there's a huge long line, right? So I start to cut, and I'm like, you know, because I've got kind of an emergency here. And so, you know, sure enough, some guy's like, hey, guy, there's a line over here. And like, I don't want to tell everybody, but like, yeah, but I shit in my pants. So I, uh, I go get in line, and I'm standing there, and I'm holding my pants, and, this, and it's just a horrible situation. And I look back, and there's this boy, little boy behind me, and I look at him, and he looks at me, and he looks down at this trickle of diarrhea going down my leg. It's going into my sneaker. And I look at him, and he looks at me, and there's like a little moment there where I'm like, come on, bro, be cool. <laughs> Don't say anything. And I think he was scared, so he didn't say anything. And so finally it's my turn, and I go into the bathroom, and I go into the bathroom stall, and uh, the door won't stay shut. It keeps swinging open. So I have to use one hand to hold the door shut. I spread my legs and put my shorts down, forming kind of like a little basket. And a miracle, there's um, toilet paper in the bathroom, which I couldn't believe. And this is interesting. Very true, every detail of the story is true. On the ground is about an inch of pee and water. And for some reason, someone has taken a shit next to the toilet. And so that's going on on the ground. I've got this situation with my pants. I don't want my pants getting down on the ground and getting someone else's shit on it. So I have to form this like little basket. I start cleaning up as best I can. I'm kind of laughing at this point. I can't believe what's going on. Um, uh, I, I get most of it taken care of, you know, I'm just like throwing everything into the commode and uh, I'm starting to get kind of, you know, like I'm like, I might get out of the situation alive. Just about that time, cops raid the bathroom. Uh, there's been some sort of sting operation uh, where they've uh, arrested a bunch of pot dealers in Central Park 
And so they rush into the bathroom and they start screaming, everybody out, everybody in the bathroom out, all civilians out of the bathroom. And they're like throwing up criminals against the wall and frisking them and screaming and everything. And I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. I still have a major mess to clean up. So I get, I get as much of it cleaned up as I possibly can. I pull my, my uh, shorts up to my nipples and I untuck my t-shirt down so it hangs down below the stain uh, on the back of my pants. And it looks like I'm wearing a dress, but you can't see the big diarrhea stain in my britches anymore. Uh, and so when I've got myself pretty much together, I walk out, the cops completely flip out. There's criminals everywhere. They're like, we told everybody to get out of here. Get the fuck out of here. What are you doing? You want to get arrested? And I was like, no, I don't. I just want to get out of here. Go back to my date. Um, so I go back to... Uh, to Dana, and I, uh, I say, Dana, I was like, I'm not feeling too good. I was like, I think I need to go home. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, sure, let's go. And so she's like, um, and I was like, I'm just gonna take the subway. She goes, I'll come with you. And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> and so we, we walked across the park to the subway. I'm wearing this t-shirt dress. I know I smell like diarrhea. And Dana isn't saying anything. She's not letting on that she knows anything. So I'm thinking like, all right, well, let's just keep going with it. We get on the subway, you know, uh, it stinks. Uh, kind of covering up my odor, I guess. And so we ride a, a few stops. We get off at 23rd Street. She goes to her apartment. I go back to my apartment. I take off the clothes. I take a shower. I put the clothes in a bag. I burn them. I'm home free. I can't fucking believe that I got out of that situation. About an hour later, phone rings. It's Dana. Dana's like, hey, Miles, how you feeling? And I'm like, so much better. So much better. And she's like, well, do you want to come over for dinner? I'm making pasta. And I'm like, she definitely doesn't know. She wouldn't be inviting me over for dinner if she knew that I'd shit in my pants on our date. So I'm like, yeah, I definitely want to come over for dinner. So I go over to her house, and she lives with a roommate. Her roommate's not there. She shows me around her apartment. She shows me the little bar area. She shows me her couch. She shows me her bedroom. We sit in there for a little while and look at some pictures. Um, she shows me around. And then she starts, you know, making the pasta in the kitchen. And we're yelling across the apartment back and forth, you know, talking about what's going on. Finally, she's just like, Miles, this is ridiculous. Well, stop yelling across the apartment. Come in here and talk to me while I finish dinner. And I was like, okay. So I get up, and I'm walking towards the kitchen. And as I walk, I reach back and I scratch my butt. And I pull back a handful of shit. And my mind melts. <laughs> I'm like, what? the fuck is going on? Am I, am I shitting through my pants now and I don't even know that I'm doing it? What is happening? And I look around her apartment and everywhere that I've sat in the last hour is a big shit stain. There's a shit stain on her couch. There's a shit stain on her fucking bed. There's on the bar stool. There's shit everywhere. And I'm just sitting there with shit in my hand, and I'm just like, I'm kind of about ready to start crying. Because I don't know what's happening. And Dana comes in, 
And she looks at me, and she gets this really angry look on her face. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on, Dana. <laughs> There's shit all over your apartment. <laughs> and she sits there for a second, and she goes, God damn it. She goes, my roommate's cat shit on the sofa. And you sat in it. And she gets super apologetic. I'd sat in cat shit. I'd never been so relieved to sit in cat shit. I was over the fucking moon about the fact that I just sat in some cat shit. I was so excited that I, I literally started laughing and smiling and I was like, that's okay! And so she's secretly going like, this is a weird reaction to finding out you just said cat shit. I was happy about it. And she's like, I'm so sorry, let me give you some shorts. And I'm gonna wash your clothes. And so she, I, she gives me some of her roommate's shorts, I put them on, and she's like, we have dinner. And she takes it and she washes them. She comes back, they're dry and everything. And she's like, I, again, Miles, I am so sorry that happened. I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, Dana, please, it is fine. Don't worry about it. She had no idea that two and a half hours, three hours earlier, I had been a foot and a half away from her with shorts full of diarrhea. So uh, I guess the coda to the story is that I, I never fessed up. And uh, we, I moved on to another job. We kind of lost touch. Uh, we would kind of call each other every once in a while. And uh, about a year and a half, two years later, we were on the phone. And I was like, oh, Dana. It's like, remember that day that we went to Central Park? and and, I, and I, I had to go home because I didn't feel good. She's like, yeah, she's like, she had a stomach thing or something. She didn't feel good. And I was like, yeah. I was like, did you know that I, I shit my pants and filled them full of diarrhea that day? And all I heard was like the phone just go <laughs> drop on the ground. And then about three seconds later, her picking it up, just like crying, laughing. She had no idea the entire time. But, so I guess I uh, was blindsided, but uh, I got away with it. Thanks for that. <laughs> That's all she wrote, folks. I have to say that you, our fans, deserve some shout-outs right about now. Sean Tucker donated his graphic design skills in creating the poo flags that you're all going to be planting around the planet soon. Scott Penhelligan gave us a lovely discount on some microphones from Guitar Center in Towson, Maryland. And Dr. Tom Single donated some free dental work for yours truly when he heard that this starving artist was um, falling apart in the mouth. 
But everyone can donate to us, even the smallest amounts, through our fundraising effort on Indiegogo.com. The drive ends on November 16th. It's called Keep Risk Running. And folks, did you know that we, the creators of Risk, have also created a storytelling school? It's at thestorystudio.org. We have weekend workshops, nine-week workshops, or perhaps your business could benefit from a storytelling workshop custom-tailored to the communication needs of your staff. Go to thestorystudio.org to learn more. And don't forget to visit sexcusemoi.com. It's a gorgeous site with everything you'd ever need for a truly elegant, romantic evening. Very sleek and classy stuff, folks. And with a $50 purchase, you get a free medium-sized bottle of this amazing Yes Organic Lube. I've tried it, and it's the best I've ever had. That's sexcusemoi.com, S-E-X-C-U-S-E-M-O-I.com. And so, welcome to year three of the Risk Podcast, folks. Today's the day. Take a risk. I know you can't let you.